been here the last couple weeks, um, you know that Pastor Ross has been doing uh, this little kind of mini-series this summer on DNA, just who we are as a church and, and why we do what we do. And so the first week he talked about presence and how it's the presence of God that really differentiates our lives. Without the presence of God, there's no difference in our lives than anybody else in the world and, and how we need to be seeking the presence of God in everything that we do and not just going through life and not just doing church, but actually seeking the presence of God. And then last week he talked about relationships and how really relationships are central to everything that God does. Always remember, it's the devil's plan to get you isolated and all alone. That's it. That, the devil's plan is to get you isolated and all alone, but it's God's plan to always bring you together and hook up. And that's really countercultural today. It used to be 50 years ago, this was an easy thing to do, to connect, to share, and be in community. But the reality is in our culture today, it's hard to connect with other people. We have to do it intentionally. We have to work hard. And that's why groups are so important, our connect groups and different things that we do. So you're not just out there by yourself, but we need to be intentional about that. This morning, I want to talk to you about the third component of who we are as, as one chapel, and that is mission. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 58. And we're going to look at this here together this morning. Isaiah chapter 58. I'm going to read it to you actually out of the message, paraphrase, so it may be a little bit different than the Bible that you're reading here this morning. Isaiah 58, starting in verse 1. It says, Shout, a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family Jacob with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And they love having me on their side. But they also complain, why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard, you fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day I'm after? A day to show off humility? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting, a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after, to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed, to cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and your, the lights will turn on, your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims. Quit gossiping about your other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourself to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I'll always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, to rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. If you watch your step on the Sabbath and you don't use my holy day for personal advantage, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, if you honor by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. Now, what I want you to notice here this afternoon is that God brings up this issue of our tendency to segment our lives. 
And so I want you to think about that just personally, because I think, you know, for so many of us, many of us, we say we're God followers, we say that we love God, but yet when it comes to how we do business, to how we treat people, to how we interact with others, how we are at home and how we are with our spouses or our children or how we are in our private lives, there can tend to be a disconnect in how we then live our lives. And there can be a lack of consistency in how we live our lives. For me, the last 14 years, I was the senior pastor at Cross Point Community Church in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Kind of long distance from Wisconsin to Texas, a little bit different in weather as well. Um, but I actually grew up in Colorado. Colorado is where I was born and I was raised and then went off to Old Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma for my education. And when I went to ORU, I had absolutely no desire to do ministry. I had no desire to become a pastor, as a matter of fact. Uh, my view of pastors were those were people who couldn't do anything else with their life. And so they just said, no, I'll be a pastor. That's kind of how I, I had such a really low view of pastors and I had this really negative bias towards them. And so the idea of ministry, the idea of pastoring was not at all on my radar whatsoever. But little by little, as I was there at ORU, God began to soften my heart and, and he began to kind of go through the back door in terms of ministry for me. And I went on a mission trip to Germany one summer and another mission trip to Eastern Europe when the Iron Curtain was still up. And I started getting involved in the chaplaincy program there at ORU. And little by little, God was beginning to stir inside of me. In the fall of my senior year, I was in a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I don't remember the church. I don't remember the pastor. I have no idea what the message was. But he read Ephesians 5.17, which says this. Don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And for whatever reason, God grabbed a hold of my heart with that scripture and began to unveil my life in a way that I had never really seen it before. Remember, I had all these biases against ministry, and I had a really kind of firm, like my, my personality can be pretty stubborn and kind of had a firm determination of what my life was, was going to be. But in that moment, I took out a pad of paper that I had with me, and I began to write down in one column, all these goals and dreams and values that I had when I entered in ORU. And then I began to write down all the things that began to decrease over these past four years and the things that the values and the goals began to increase. And when I was looking at that pad and looking at what God had done in my life the last four years, the Spirit of God asked me this question. And he said, how do you want to invest your life? And I could see it. I could see the paths that were on this piece of paper. And in that moment, that's when I said yes to God. Yes, God, I will invest the rest of my life in building and establishing and expanding your kingdom. And that's when I said yes to the call of God in terms of ministry. Two weeks later, I got a letter from um, a pastor in Germany asked me to come on staff. I would consider coming on staff and being a part of that church there in Germany outside of Nuremberg. And it was easy. It was an easy decision. I already said yes two weeks ago. I have an international business degree in German and theology. And all of a sudden, these worlds were converging on me. And so it was an easy decision. So when I graduated from ORU, I flew over to Germany, left everything, and just started living over there in Europe. It was an amazing season of my life. And uh, God also brought convergence in terms of what had happened when I'd went to Eastern Europe. He'd reconnected me with some, some people that I'd worked, over, worked, worked with over in Poland, and I began traveling back and forth from Germany to Poland. This is right when the wall now came down. And so there was an openness, and all of a sudden there was a freedom, and there was a stirring that was beginning to happen there in Poland. And there was a revival that was actually happening within the Catholic Church at that time. And through that, we were able to plant three churches. And so I would travel back and forth from Germany to Poland, Germany to Poland. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. 
But how many know that God has a way of doing things that kind of surprises us and shocks us and kind of takes us off the path that we initially thought for our lives? And that's what happened to me in a kind of a weird circumstances of events. I found myself back in Colorado Springs, no longer moving over in, living over in Europe. I came on staff at New Life Church in Colorado Springs and um, started dating my wife. And five months later, we got married. A year later, we had our first child. A year after that, we had our second child. A year after that, we had our third child. And then we retired and took a break. <laughs> And a few years later, we had our fourth child here, Sheldon. And all three of our older kids are now in college. Our youngest one is a sophomore in high school. And we were part of New Life those, for seven years. And that's when um, Ross and Amy and Courtney and I's lives reconnected. We knew each other at, at ORU, but our lives had reconnected there at New Life. And we were there for seven years. Again, I thought, this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. You know, I'm from Colorado, and God reconnected all of this. But I have a friend who'd been, I had, he was a friend at ORU, and he was a he also was on staff at New Life for uh, several years, and then he went and took a church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Of all places, he went to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and he got himself into kind of a really difficult, sticky situation of things that were coming out of the church, and it really took a toll on him and his wife, and they were just extremely burned out. And they came back to Colorado Springs, and were just talking to Courtney and I about that and say, would you consider coming and helping us through this very difficult time? He went and talked to our pastor there at New Life, and and New Life gave us the permission and kind of loaned us out what they said for two years. We're going to loan you out for two years. And so we sold everything and moved to the deep south. We moved to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, the homeland of Brett Favre. <laughs> Any Packers in the house? I need, just need to know right away. Thank you. Very good. Got a couple. And so we, went, we left everything. We moved to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and my friend went on sabbatical. And so I took over the church and ran the church while he was on sabbatical. And thank God, God did a miracle in his heart while he was on sabbatical. God restored innocence and just life and vision in his heart. And he came off of sabbatical, just raring to go, and said, I'm ready to do this. And by this time, it had been two years. And, and so the thought was that we were supposed to go back to, to, to New Life in Colorado Springs. But Courtney and I, we just felt like there was something different, that we weren't actually supposed to go back. There was something else that we were supposed to do. So we began to pray. And I'll never forget this. We had this big um, kind of southern house in, in Hattiesburg with this big wraparound porch. And I was sitting on the, the front porch. We had these rocking chairs. And I was sitting on the front porch just sipping sweet tea, and that's what you do. Um, even if it's January, you still are out in shorts in Mississippi sipping sweet tea. And so I was sitting there on my rocking in my front on my front porch, and, and I felt the Spirit of God began to stir inside of my heart that there are pockets in the United States that are being unreached for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for whatever reason, sometimes it's because pastors won't go there. <laughs> the people just aren't going to those areas because they're not popular, they're not, you know, they're not what people want to do, or, or in other places, it's just because the ground is so hard, it's hostile territory, it's hard diggings in order to be able to see a lot of fruits come out of that field and began to stir in my heart how there's pockets like that all over the United States. And, and I felt like I entered in the commander-in-chief's office and I was standing before him and he said, here's the assignment. Are you willing to go to one of these places? And remember, I'd already said yes to him a bunch of years earlier. And so again, I said, yes, I'll, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll, I'll go. You know my background. You know who I am. Wherever I can fit, I'm willing to go. And through another remarkable um, set of circumstances and situations. That's how we ended up in the southern part of Wisconsin. I had no idea how unreached it was, and it was a little bit later that I finally discovered that only about 8% of the population actually goes to church in where we live in Wisconsin, 8%. And even now that 8%, the vast majority of people who go to church, it's a very Germanic and Scandinavian culture, 
And so most of the people that even go to church are going in a very traditional Catholic Lutheran background. And the, most of those churches are just not necessarily Bible-believing or Christ-centered churches. So the vast majority of people have really not encountered God in their lives. So when we talk about inconsistency in people's faith, when we talk about this disconnect in their daily lives, this is exactly what we are confronted with. It's so prevalent in that culture, in that culture of Wisconsin. And, but what I discovered and what I um, was able to actually live out and see God do is that we, as we began to present the life of Jesus Christ and began to intentionally disciple people, that these first generation Christians whose lives were so messy, they began to grow in their faith. And not only did they grow individually, but our church grew as well. We grew from 120 people to when I left just four weeks ago, we had five campuses and 1,200 people that are part of all of, our, all of our campuses. Let me just tell you something, folks. That's a miracle of God. You may be familiar with all that. You're, you're in Texas. You're in, you're in God country, right? Surrounding you here, Texas is known for that. But in, in that culture that's so unchurched and so hostile, that's, an, that's a miracle of God. And to be honest, I thought I was going to live the rest of my life there. I mean, it's like giving birth. We gave birth to five different campuses. And so how do you leave that? But in January, I felt God begin to stir something in my heart. And begin at, the, at first, I, just had, I couldn't figure out what this was. I, could, I couldn't identify. I just knew something was shifting inside of my heart. And so we have overseers just like we have here at One Chapel. And I began to call my overseers, my mentors, my counselors, and ask, so this is going on. What do you think? And I went and spent time with several of them and, and uh, um, just began to ask, what is this all about? And I began to discover in this process that I began to realize that my assignment that God gave me 14 years ago was done. What I didn't know is if God was going to re-up the assignment or if there was going to be a different assignment. And it was in March when I called Pastor Ross, who was one of our overseers, and I was talking all through this whole process, and he gave me great advice and counsel through all of that and really helped me walk through some different things. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, okay, so are we done talking about you? Because I'd like to talk about me. <laughs> and I said, sure, what's going on with you, Ross? And he said, let me just talk to you what's going on in, at one chapel and what's going on here in Austin. And he began to tell me, your story and what God is doing here. And as we began to talk, as we began to pray together, we began to see the convergence of our lives happening again. And uh, over the next couple weeks leading into April, we just felt God affirm and, and continually confirm that this is exactly what he had, that the new assignment that God had in our lives was to join with your lives and be a part of what God is doing here. These last four months probably have been the, the hardest in my entire life because it was leaving everything, you know. It's, I, I don't think I've ever grieved as much as I have last four months. I don't think I've cried as much as I have the last four months because it was, it was leaving everything. And people would ask, well, are you excited about this, this new assignment? And I had, to say, I had to say, you know, to be honest, all I am is sad right now. I know I'll eventually be excited. And that's exactly what happened. When, we, when I arrived here four weeks ago, all of a sudden that grief turned into joy. And all of a sudden that, that excitement started going inside of me. And I, am, I can stand before you today and I'm so excited to be a part of what God's doing here in one chapel and here in Austin in this, in this region. I'm thrilled with what God has in store for us. And every single day I begin to see it clearer and clearer. And I'm excited for you to be able to hear next week when Ross talks about vision and what God's put in his heart um, because your life and our lives are going to be impacted by what God has in store for all of this. But I think it's important for us to understand that whether you're in Poland or Germany or Wisconsin, or if you're here in Austin, that all of us have this tendency to segment our lives, to have this disconnect, this inconsistency in our faith lives. I want you to listen to this quote from Dallas Willer in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. He says, faith today is treated as something that only should make us different. Not that it actually does or can make us different. 
In reality, we vainly struggle against the evils of this world, waiting to die and to go to heaven. Somehow we've gotten the, the idea that the essence of faith is entirely a mental or inward thing. I look at this quote and I think, what in the world? How does, it, how does this happen in our life where our faith just becomes a mental thing? Where it becomes just a Sunday thing or an inward thing? When do, how do we get to this place? Where's that hole in our understanding of the gospel? Because in Matthew chapter 25, if you've read it before, this is the story of the sheep and the goats. You remember this? But in this passage, Jesus is describing what can happen and the eternal ramifications if we don't walk out our faith. Look at this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he'll put the sheep on his right and goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you are cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and you not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Of all the passages of scripture, this is the one that scares me the most. Because it's a reality check. How are we living our life? You understand, both groups of people stood in heaven saying, I'm supposed to get in. They all said, I, I think I'm here, God. I made it. I'm, I'm, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. But yet in this passage, we see this disconnect that's going to easily happen in our lives where we don't connect our faith with how then we live our lives. Listen, our faith cannot just be restrained and restricted into one room of our lives. And so often that's exactly what we do. We come into that room on a Sunday like this and we enter that room of our lives where God is, where our faith life is, and we have fun and we rejoice that God is, or we have a crisis and we enter that room in our, in our, in that li in, in our lives where God is. But when the crisis is done, we come out of that room. And then we go into our workroom, our, our homeroom, our, our playroom. That's how we live our life. Our faith cannot be restrained and restricted to just one room in our life. Our faith needs to be the very breath that we breathe in every room of our life. That's how we're to live our lives. And, and if we don't do that, if our faith, our relationship with God, does not become the very breath that we breathe in every room of our life, then we're susceptible to falling into this category of the goats where we don't bring our faith into our daily lives and actually treat the least of these like God tells us to. That becomes the eternal ramification. I think these verses could be paraphrased this way. For I was hungry while you had all you needed and threw out all your leftovers. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water without a second thought. I was a stranger and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more brand name clothes in order to keep up with the fleeting trends. I was sick and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison and you said I was getting what I deserved. You see the discrepancy? Do you see the inconsistency? 
Do you see that disconnect that can happen in our lives where our faith lives don't actually connect with how we live then our, our daily lives? And so go back to Isaiah chapter 58. Because in Isaiah 58, God gives us eight very practical and tangible things that we're to practically do to bring our faith life into our, our normal everyday lives. Look again, Isaiah chapter 50, 58, verse 7. It says, what I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering, ill-clad, being available to your own families. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourself to the down and out, if you Watch your step on the Sabbath and don't use my holy day for personal advantage. If you treat the Sabbath day as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration. If you're honored by refusing business as usual, making money running here or there. There's eight practical things, very tangible things that God tells us to do to make sure we're incorporating our faith and into our daily lives. Here's number one. Number one, feed the hungry. Just simply go feed the hungry. Those who have less than you, go feed them. Number two, invite the homeless poor into your home. Invite the homeless and the poor into your, your home. Number three, put clothes on those who are without. Put clothes on those who are without. Number four, be available to your family. I find this one so interesting because in the midst of all this external stuff, God said, make sure you pay attention to your family. Take care of your family. Number five, be generous with the hungry. Be generous with the hungry. Number six, give yourself to the down and out. Number seven, keep the Sabbath holy. And number eight, honor God in all that you do. Honor God in all that you do. Eight very specific, tangible, practical things that God tells us specifically to do to make sure that we're incorporating our faith and our relationship with God actually into then our daily lives. And so the question becomes, then what happened? Why don't we do this? I don't think God could make it any clearer for us, but I think for so many of us, there's still a disconnect. We still just, we hunker down and we just live our lives, go through the motion and do our things. So where is that disconnect? There's a book out there called Compassion Fatigue. And in this book, author Susan Moeller, she offered this as an explanation. Listen to this. In the news business, one dead fisherman in Brooklyn is worth five English bobbies who are worth 50 Arabs who are worth 500 Africans. Now think about what she's saying here. Because what she's talking about here is there's a tendency for us to have less empathy for those that are not directly related to us. One dead fisherman in Brooklyn is worth five English hot bobbies who are worth 50 Arabs who are worth 500 Africans. What a horrible equation. But you know what? I think it's true. If we would stop and think about it, I think it's true. Our lives are based around what really is connected to me, what impacts me. And everything else I may have an awareness of it, but I really don't want to address, I really don't want to deal with. And so I think Susan Moeller is correct in, in her assessment that we're compassion fatigued. All you have to do is turn on the, the news any day of the, the morning and, and watch what's going on in the world or read your newspaper. And it, the lists of atrocities and tragedies are endless. You know, disease and natural disaster, famine, war, they're everywhere. It's just endless. It's just constant, constant, constant. And so we're constantly receiving this barrage of all the stuff that's happening around us. And so I think it's true. What, what we end up doing is that in order for us just to get by, to deal with the world that we live in today, most of us, what we do is that we put these blinders around our eyes, we stick our head in that proverbial sand, and then we just pretend like everything around us is okay. Yeah. We just, we get absorbed in our life. We get absorbed in what's right here, right now, and we try to push out everything else and say, you know what, it really doesn't matter. I just can't deal with it. There's just too much of it. Would you say these words after me? Say this out loud. Say, God. God. Say it again. Say, God. God. Break my heart, break my heart. For, the for the things that break your heart. 
Say it again. Say, God, God break, my heart break my heart for the things, for the things that, break your heart. that break your heart. It's a dangerous prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. But let me just say, if we don't constantly pray that prayer, and if God doesn't actually do that in our lives, then what's going to happen is that all we're going to do is get absorbed with right here, and we're not going to be able to live our lives and love the people like, God, like the way God wants us to love them. We need to pray, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Do any of you know who George Bernard Shaw is? Have you ever heard that name before? He was a, a famous author and philosopher and playwright. He was also a very outspoken atheist in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He said this. He said, the worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. As much as I disagree with the stance of God, obviously, I absolutely agree with this statement. The worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. This is what God was addressing in Isaiah 58, our indifference. Our indifference to the oppressed, our indifference to the outcast, our indifference to the downtrodden, the marginalized, the forgotten, the poor, and the sick. He was addressing this issue of indifference in our lives. And so this afternoon, I want you to think about this. Because what does the face of the oppressed and the downtrodden, the face of the outcast and the, and the marginalized, what does that face actually look like for us here in Texas, here in this Austin area, in Travis County, and, and Hayes County? What does that face actually look like? Because I think for most of us, we know what that face looks like in Africa. We know what that face looks like in other third world countries, but here, where, we're, where we live, what does that face actually look like? Like I mentioned before, I spent the last 14 years in the southern part of Wisconsin, and only about 8% of the population goes to church. And so, how many of you know that when God's not working in your life, your life's really messy? You know that? When God's not working in your life, our lives get very messy very quickly. And so, one of the things I felt like I was constantly having to do is to try to train my face not to look shocked when I would hear people's stories and the nastiness of what was going on in their lives. I don't think I've ever been a part for such a long period of time of just the messiness of people's lives. But that's exactly what was going on. We're dealing with first-generation Christians. They were coming out of so much junk. And let me just say, people's lives are messy. God's call for us to go into the darkness to go after the outcast, the downtrodden, the marginalized, and the forgotten is messy. And it's going to stir things up in you that you may not even realize are there. Because people's lives are messy. There's nastiness in people's lives. But yet, this is where God calls us to go. This is the mission that you, that I have, that we have on our lives. This is how we're supposed to live our lives. And so, when you think about Austin in this area, 18% of the population... Only 18% of the population of this area goes to some sort of Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. Only 18%. Did you know that? I think there's a little bit of disconnect here, especially in the Texas culture, if you grew up here. Because this is Texas. This is God country, right? But in Austin, Austin's different than the rest of Texas. Right? You all know that. The world knows that. Austin is different. I feel at home, actually, from Wisconsin here. This is a very unchurched, even hostile towards the gospel of Jesus Christ here in this area. There's a tension because you have, you have, a, you have a Christian culture and a religious culture that's kind of, kind of around this, but boy, internally, you have a very hostile culture that's going on as well. And so there's the clash that is happening here. So think about that. Only 18% go to a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church, which means 82% of the population are not being impacted by God, 
Which means this, I can guarantee you then that the vast majority of people that are in your neighborhood, that are in your workplace, that are in your schools and your classrooms, the people that you're meeting in the grocery stores and you're passing by in the street, I can guarantee you their lives are messy. There's a messiness to their lives. They may give a good show on the outside, but there's a messiness that's going on in their lives. And this is who God has called you to go to. And so what does that face look like? I want to give you some stories and statistics of people in this area because I think this is some of the faces of the oppressed in our area. In Travis County, there's 4.3% of the people are unemployed, 4.3%. That actually is kind of a low number when you think um, nationally. It's kind of a low number of people who are employed, but 16.1% of the people live in poverty. 16.1% of the people that live here in Travis County live in poverty. And you may be affected. You may be here and you say, that, that's me. You know, that's what's going on. I lost my job. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling in all of this. But 16.1%, and you understand, when you're living in poverty, then boy, is it a downhill spiral from there and all the messiness and junk that can happen then in your life. In Hayes County, 4.5% of the people are unemployed. Again, it's a small number, but 15.4% of the population in Hayes County live in poverty. In addition, homelessness is on a rise here in Texas. And all you have to do is drive around Austin just a little bit. I've only been here four weeks, and it's very obvious the increase of homelessness here in this area. But one of the areas that I think is always forgotten in this issue of homelessness is the issue of children. And over the last five years, the number of children who are homeless has grown to 26%. 26% of all children in Texas are now homeless. Does your brain even comprehend that? Texas is now 12th in the nation of child homelessness, 12th in the nation. And right here in Travis County, there are three to 5,000 children who are homeless. Three to 5,000. Does that do anything in your heart? God, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. I think for so many of us, we hear these numbers and it doesn't comprehend. It doesn't even stir your heart. That's how callous our hearts can become. Single-parent families are also in a rise in our area. In Travis County, 35% of the families are single-parent families. And in Hayes County, 24.6% are single-parent families. So that means that one-fourth to one-third of all families in our areas are single-parent families. And if you are a single parent, you know how challenging that can be. You know how difficult and how dealing with finances, dealing with relationships, what a struggle that can be. And one-fourth to one-third of all families are now single-parent families here in this area. I think another area that's, that deals with this and has a tremendous area of need are group homes and halfway houses. In Travis County, 1,402 people live in homes for the mentally and or physically handicapped. And in Hayes County, 885 people live in homes for the physically and or mentally handicapped. And for those of you who have children who have special needs, you, you know how difficult this can be. You know the strain that it can put on your marriage. You know the strain that it can put on your finances. You know how alone you feel if you have children who have special needs. And then you have jails and prisons, which to me are one of the most forgotten areas within our culture today. Travis County, there's 3,554 people who are in our jails and prisons around here. And in Hayes County, there's 932 people who are in jails and prison. And so I want you to think about this, because when was the last time you actually even thought about somebody, anybody, that might be in a jail or a prison? They're forgotten, aren't they? We don't even think about them. Let me push a little harder. When was the last time you actually visited somebody in a jail 
or in a prison? Where does that come on our radar? I think nursing homes are also a forgotten area within our culture today. In Travis County, there's 2,510 people who live in nursing homes. And in Hayes County, there's 451 people who live in nursing homes. But I want you to listen to this statistic. 65 to 70% of elderly in nursing homes have no visitors. 65 to 70% of the elderly who are in nursing homes have no visitors. The vast majority um, have, uh, they have no one um, that, that come over on holidays. They spend their holidays alone. Out of 18 to 19 families represented in a nursing home, only two to three families actually show up and spend time with their family members. Only two to three families actually out of 18 and 19 actually come and spend any time with their family members. I think they're a forgotten part of our culture. So when was the last time you thought about somebody in a nursing home? When was the last time you actually went and actually visited somebody? Take your kids and just go visit somebody in a nursing home. And then I think some of the outcasts and some of the lepers of our culture today are sex offenders. In Travis County, there's 739 registered sex offenders. And in Hayes County, there's 282 registered sex offenders. I think these are some of the outcasts and the lepers of our, of our culture here today. And I know by saying that, I may have just stirred up a bee's hornet in your heart. Because you may have been impacted by somebody who's been abusive. Somebody who's abused you physically or mentally or emotionally or sexually. And you need to hear me, please. You need to hear me very closely. Because God wants to heal you. God wants to restore you. His heart is broken for you as well. And God wants to bring restoration and wholeness in your life. I know the pain that victimization can have. Can have. And you need to know God's heart for you wants to restore that to the depths of your soul. But I'm also here to tell you, if you're, if you're an abuser, if you've been abusing people physically or emotionally or spiritually or sexually, then God's heart is for you as well. And God wants to deliver you. God wants to save you. God wants to restore you. God wants to bring healing in your life. God's, God wants to redeem you from those addictions that are driving you. He wants to bring wholeness in your, in your life. And you don't need to hide. God, you need to be able to bring that forward. I want you to listen to a letter that I received. My name is Tom. I'm 33 years old and I'm a sex offender. I know for many of you, just hearing those words, sex offender, makes you mad. It makes others of you just groan in disgust. But you need to know that sex offenders are just regular people who have made bad choices. I'm just like you, but things happened in my life to set me up to fail. I grew up in a Christian home, but I was introduced to sexual things at nine years old. I couldn't deal with it. I had a good family, but I couldn't talk about what was going on inside of me and what had happened to me. And so the pain grew into an addiction. Secretly, I started dealing with same-sex attraction, but I couldn't talk about it because I was too afraid of the consequences of speaking up. I wanted to help, but who do I call for help? Where do I go? It seemed to me that this was a topic too taboo to discuss with anyone. I became more and more troubled through my middle school and high school years, troubled socially, low self-esteem, and even suicidal. I kept thinking, though, there's got to be a different way for me. At 19, I was arrested for sexually abusing my two nephews. A part of me felt relieved because now I could finally be open and get help. But when I was sitting in prison for four years, the help that I so desperately wanted was not given. All my counselors told me to do was to accept myself for who I was, accept the thoughts, and to love myself. This was the help they offered. But to complicate things, everything about the prison system is designed to take away the inmates' hope. My time in prison was so demeaning. All it did was to break my will to succeed. It's very hard to think highly of yourself when you're in prison. And so what's the point? I would cling to letters from friends and family just hoping that people hadn't forgotten me, that they hadn't given up on me, that they were still praying for me. I felt alone. You would have thought that life would have gotten easier when I got, was let out of prison, but life outside of prison was in some ways even harder than life in prison. 
I was forced to return to the county of my fence, even though I owned a home in a, a different county. It was difficult to even find a place to live. Who wants to live next to a convicted sex offender? Even temporary shelters like Salvation Army won't help or house sex offenders. I had no transportation, and I needed a chaperone to accompany to public places or where children were present. Employment was very hard to come by, and I had no opportunity in my field of experience. I had to abide by a very, very strict rules and was subject to random $400 polygraph tests that I had to pay for each time. I lived in constant fear of judgmental and dangerous people who might want to hurt me. I always lived in fear that my friends and family and loved ones could be scrutinized and attacked because of me. I always felt like everyone was staring at me. Even though I was out of prison, I still felt like a prisoner. I worried that nobody would accept or care about me or be willing to be there for me when I was in need. I lived in constant fear of backlash when I would be honest about my past. Even at church, I felt like I'd be shunned if people really knew about my past or I'd be kicked out of church. So that would just reinforce the idea that painful and embarrassing secrets must stay quiet and be isolated. And so I always felt like I had to hold back, not being able to live out the scripture that said, speaking to one another in truth, bearing each other's burdens. I just wasn't sure what was safe. I felt all along rejected by society and even discarded by the church. It's messy, folks. It's messy. I had the privilege of being able to walk this man the last 12 years while I was there in Wisconsin through all of this. And the thing that I want you to know is that God can save and redeem any person's life. And you need to understand that. That God's not giving up on you and he didn't give up on Tom. God never gives up on us. We give up on people. We give up on ourselves. But God, God doesn't. And let me just say, it's messy. And it was messy for a long time, trying to work with Tom. But little by little, God began to redeem and to heal, to deliver from all sorts of stuff in his life. And I saw so much incredible growth in this, in this man's life. It was hard, incredibly hard. But I, I want to tell you this, that the day before I, I left Wisconsin, I performed his wedding. He met and fell in love with a woman who was able to embrace him for who he was and his past and all the messiness of his past. And God restored and do something beautiful in both of their lives. And that's what he can do with any of our lives. The problem is that we're afraid of messiness. We, we don't want to deal with mess. We, it's easy for us. We want to divert our eyes from the pain and suffering that are around us. But listen, this is where God tells us to go. God tells us to go into the messiness of, and boy, can that stir up stuff in our own heart, junk in our own heart that God wants to deliver us from as well. Someone once wrote, God, why do you allow poverty and suffering and injustice when you could do something about it? And God responded, why do you allow poverty and suffering and injustice when you could do something about it? I think it's so true, right? God has left us here on planet Earth to be his hands and his feet, to be his arms outstretched, to be his heart to the people around us. And his call and his mission on your life is to go into the dark places, to go into those dark places. As we end here this afternoon, I want, you, I want to listen to, read to you one more little story. It's the parable of one man and a million starfish. Listen to this. One early morning after a fierce storm had hit the coast, I strolled to the beach for my morning walk. Horrified, I saw that tens of thousands of starfish had been washed up on a beach by the winds and waves. I was saddened by the realization that all of them would die, stranded on the shore away from the life-giving water. Despairing that there was nothing I could do, I sat down on the sand and put my head in my hands. But then I heard a sound, and I lifted my eyes. There in the distance, I saw a man bending down, then standing up, bending down, and standing up. Curious, I rose and walked toward him. I saw that he was picking up the starfish one at a time and throwing them back into the sea. What are you doing, I yelled. Saving the starfish, he replied. But don't you see, man, that there are tens of thousands of them? I asked incredulous. Nothing you can do will make a difference. 
He did not answer me, but instead bent down, picked up another starfish, and cast it back into the water. Then he smiled and looked at me in the eye and said, it made a difference to that one. It made a difference to that one. Yes, the needs are overwhelming, but you can make a difference. Not the person sitting beside you, but you. Come on, put your finger right here in your chest. Look at your chest and say, me. I can make a difference. Oh, nobody said that. <laughs> I need to tell you again, you can make a difference. Look at yourself and say, I can make a difference. You can, folks. I know. I'm a testimony of one person can create a difference in people's lives. You can make a difference. And this is what God has called you to. When you came in this morning, this afternoon, I hope you were able to pick up one of these little things. I want you to look at it. Because when you look at it, there's absolutely nothing significant about it, is there? I look at it and I think it's kind of ugly. It's kind of useless. It has no, no real purpose for it. And I think that's so often how we look at our own lives. We think, my life's not significant. What difference can I make? I'm no, nobody special. But I want you to notice something that happens when the lights go off. When your life is broken, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Look at what happens. What was insignificant now becomes significant. What looked average and non-impactful, all of a sudden, what a difference. Light always dispels the darkness. And this is what God was speaking in Isaiah chapter 58. Your lives will glow in the darkness. So many people have asked me over the years, Pastor, why don't we see, why don't we see all the different miracles in the Bible? Why, why does it feel like there's not very miracles that are happening in our world today? I mean, I haven't seen a miracle. Why don't you think about this? Where did Jesus go to perform miracles? He went to the lepers, didn't he? In that dark place, miraculous things happened. He went to the sick. He went to the, the dead, the dying. And it was, that was when the miraculous happened. It's in the darkness, folks, that your light, your life glows. And that's when the miraculous happens. Come on, stand to your feet here, if you would, please. And as you stand, I want you to lift up your glow stick really high. I want you to turn around and I want you to look. Because I want you to put this in your, your mind here as a visual of your life. Because it's one thing when one person's life glows. But look at what happens when 200 people let their lives glow. All of a sudden, what was dark now becomes light. I can see you. And it's because your, light, your life is glowing. This is how God wants to use you, folks. And we need to get out of living our lives just constrained to what's connected to us and being able to let God, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And then look, look around you. 82% of the population are living their lives without God impacting their life. You go, go after them. Let's bring you together. But I thank you. I thank you, God, for how you go after us, that you never, ever, ever give up on us. God, thank you for how you do that. And Lord, I pray for the people here this afternoon that maybe feel like, that you, God, that you've given up on them. That maybe that 
you've done so many things in your past that, that how could God love you? How could your life ever change? You, you see the messiness in your life. That's, that's maybe exactly how you feel. You feel like your life is just messy. There's nastiness to your life and you feel stuck in that addiction. You feel stuck in that abuse. You feel stuck in that victimization. And you need to know something. God has not given up on you. And Jesus, he is your answer. And so when everybody else may have given up on you, God has not. And so right where you are, just invite Jesus to come into your life. Just invite him. Ask him. Jesus, I need you. Right where you are, you just ask him. With your own mouth, just ask. That's, that's how we invite God in. And the Bible says that, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's promise to you. So just ask, invite him. Jesus, just come. Come into my life. I need you. My life is so messy. I need you to take over my life. And then others of you may, you may have already done that. But yet this year, this afternoon, you're beginning to realize the disconnect, how you've just kind of reduced God to one room in your life. It hasn't become your very breath that you're breathing in every room of your life. And you've allowed your life to just to be confined to what's right around you, what's connected to you, and you've diverted your eyes from the pain and suffering around you. But yet God's stirring something in you. God's stirring this mission to renew, to restore, and to rebuild. It's the mission God gives us. This is the mission that we have here at One Chapel. This is who we are. This is why we do the things that we do. And God's beginning to stir that inside of you and say, go. Go into the darkness. Don't be afraid of the messiness because it's in that darkness. It's in that messiness that you'll see you'll see the miraculous work of God. Father, I pray for that commissioning to happen to every man and woman and young person here in this auditorium. As we go this week that we can be commissioned to be your hands and feet, your arms outstretched, your heart to this area, to our workplaces, to our school, our classrooms here this week. And it's in Jesus' name.